You're listening to the Photographer's Story Podcast. I'm your host, Hark Najjar, and joining me is international photography business coach, Bernie Griffiths, as my co-host. Well, welcome, everybody. Today, we have uh, Robert Gray with us. Uh, hi, Robert. Uh, good to have you on board. Uh, good morning, afternoon, wherever you are. Yeah, Bernie's uh, here joining us from Australia as well. Hi, Bernie. How are you doing? Hi, Hark. Hi, Robert. Uh Good to be here again, and uh, I'm very excited today because we've got an extraordinary guest uh, to speak to today. Uh, Robert has been around the industry, around Australia and the world for many decades. I think it's about 62 years, isn't it, Robert? Not quite as long, but um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I started in uh, just before the end of the 60s. I started work as a cadet photographer when I was not quite 17, uh, press photographer uh, on one of Australia's then great newspapers, The Age, in Melbourne. Yeah, well, a lot of photographers started that. I started there myself at 15 years old. I was a, a photographer on a newspaper, which unfortunately, as I tell the story, uh, folded. Mm, well... They are doing it now with increasing rapidity. Yeah, folding. Yeah, so yeah. that's continued on over 50 years. That's great. Are there, are there still any news organisation left after the Facebook uh, fiasco that you guys just had recently? Uh, well, that's, a, that's an extremely interesting uh, equation, one which uh, many people should have thought more carefully before they stepped amongst, really. Are you talking um, about our Prime Minister? Uh, not just the Prime Minister, but the people who have their hand up his back, I suspect. <laughs> uh, but it's, a, it's an extremely complex negotiating uh, thing to watch mm. because they are all right, of course, uh, except Murdoch. He's just always not avaricious. Right. He's always avaricious. You can always count on him to go hard for the for the money, uh, and he sees things in a straight line, uh, yeah. I suspect. Uh, however, he's very clever and very cagey, and he's got the Prime Minister to do his bidding, I suspect, in this case, and he and his mob have fallen in. Yeah. Uh, so, Robert, um, you know, you've got a million stories. I had the great pleasure of sitting down over a coffee and something sweet uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, you told me a, a lot of stories there you, you started off as you say as newspaper photographer you, you become a real became a real photographer uh, a commercial photographer as opposed to a wedding photographer who weren't considered real photographers in in our era probably still not uh, so you went the commercial track and built up a very big reputation around the world. Tell us a little bit more uh, about that journey. Well, um, the best way to do it is to sort of just, I'm going to give a plug for my website, which has not been up all that long, which is robertgrayarchive.com.au. Uh, so if people are interested, they can wander through it there, my little resume. Um but I'll pick you up, Bernie, and say that wedding photography is a fantastic skill. I'm always in awe of people who do effectively the same job every week with enthusiasm and skill. Um, it's, it's something to be marvelled at how successful wedding photographers um, stay coherent after 
you know, it seems to me that I'd be a, I'd be a mess if I had to do the same thing week in, week out and deal with bridezillas and stuff like that. And many ways, that's why I ended up in commercial photography is that I, I found it a lot easier to deal with people who, uh, firstly, uh, commercial clients have a professional attachment and a, uh, a will to succeed, but they are not personally invested in any great way in either the process or the outcomes. Uh, secondly, they're not spending their own money they're usually spending the boss's money or someone in England or the USA is about five layers between them and whoever's money they're spending. So they, they manage to uh, embrace a situation where they let you have a budget. Okay. So bringing the travel in, in, into account now, and uh, as a professional photographer, you've obviously traveled the world. Tell us about some of the, countries you visited and uh, well, some of your experiences well i i uh i was in australia from um while i was at the age i then i took over as a as a uh, picture editor of one of their newspapers uh, there used to be there was it folded uh, the sunday press but it folded for all sorts of reasons which are not now current um i was picture editor of the sunday press for about a year and a fellow rang me from one of our northern states here in australia uh, queensland and offered me a job uh i told him i didn't want his job because i had what i thought was the best one in australia and he said oh yes but i've got a better one for you and uh then of course as negotiations go i also said yeah but I get paid a lot of money. And he said, yeah, well, I've got that too. I can give you more. And uh, without um, making a, a long story even longer, uh, when I was young, I mean, I was 23 or four at this stage, quite young. And I was always a hard driver for myself. And I had set a goal of becoming an A-grade photographer in newspapers by the time I was 25, and I had managed to uh, confide this fact with very few people, one of whom lived in Queensland and who was talking to me on the phone, and he said the magic words, ah, yes, but we'll make you an A grade. <laughs> so uh, as well as the money and the, the fantastic job he was offering, he also, uh, in my weak spot, which was trying to elevate myself to a point where some people had worked for 30, 40 years and still hadn't got there. Um, one of the problems I find with the young these days is that they're not kicking down doors nearly enough. They should be out there grabbing everything by the throat and uh, pushing people aside and making their mark as broad and deep as they can. Um and in many ways, that's why I'm comfortable to not shoot anymore because I'm happy to leave it to the young. It's what they deserve. Yeah. So you went to Queen. You went to to Cairns, and then. Uh, well, I went to I went to Queensland, and I had a uh, I had a unit on the Gold Coast. Uh, they gave me a four wheel drive and a bag of cameras uh, to my 
specifications. And I spent 10 months in what we would loosely call the outback, but also known as the bush, um, traveling, finding photographs, finding photographs, making stories, making picture stories, uh, primarily in black and white. This is in the year 1976. Um, meeting up with journalists at various places. Uh, you've got to understand Queensland is a very, very big place. Uh, if I go diagonally from Mount Isa down to Brisbane, it's about a 28-hour drive. Uh, if I go north from Brisbane to Cairns, it's a 22-hour drive. Uh, and then it's another seven or 800 kilometres to the tip of the country from there. So it's a big playground for me when I was that age. And that's what I did. I took off and did it all. And then, of course, <laughs> the publication folded. And uh, I had, had the uh, presence of mind, I wouldn't elevate it higher than that, to, uh, to get them when they gave me a letter of appointment to undertake, should they fold the publication, uh, to give me a fair swag of money, which they did. Uh, and were honourable throughout. Everybody did the correct and honourable thing. Uh, and I found myself effectively unemployed. Um, I was, I didn't really wish to go back to Melbourne. And uh, I'd met a few people who travelled a fair bit by then. And uh, I thought, I don't know why, that I'd leave for New York. Uh, one has these things when you're young. I got as far as Hong Kong and I found it was a fantastic place. I loved it. I met some terrific people, some of whom are still alive. Some are solid mates still after all these years, although in, I think my great friend Barry is now approaching 90 and still punching on. Um, he was a marketing and PR guru and, uh, I stayed in Hong Kong because I had some good friends there and so forth. I got a call. You must understand this is before uh, mobile phones, before fax machines, uh, before computers, before everything. What, what year are we talking about? This is around 1981 to 87 or is that prior to that? Uh, this is 80. No, this is 70. This is late 76. Oh, okay. The job in, Queens, the job in Queensland only lasted uh a year, which was disappointing for me. I, I was really, really not happy with it, but you've got to do what you've got to do. And uh, by about 77, I'd been in Hong Kong for a year or so. I got a phone call. Goodness knows how he found me in Hong Kong. Uh, although I was sharing a studio, I'd been taken in by a photographer in Hong Kong called Dinshaw Belsaro, who was a, a magnificent fellow. Um, and an interesting chap in his own right. He was a, uh, a Parsi, which is a, a small group of people from somewhere towards India, between India and I think and uh, the Middle East, and had been brought up as an orphan in a Scottish orphanage in India. 
uh, one of his school, uh, one of his schoolmates was actually Zubin Mehta, the great conductor. And uh, he was an interesting fellow and he took me in for some reason. Uh, he, he was classically, he trained himself uh, as a photographer and pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He was the society dude for Hong Kong, well-known, well-loved by everybody because he was totally mad. Um, and he had more camera gear than probably any other human on the planet. And whether it's because you're an orphan or because of his background or whatever, he just loved acquiring gear. He just could not get enough of it. He had one of those big securely locked wardrobes uh, full of all the SL uh, Leica gear, M-bodies, all the lenses that go there with four or five gear, bronze colours, hazy lights to the max, everything. And that's where I really started to learn how to, to actually take pictures technically, properly. Um, because as a newspaper photographer, uh, probably not these days because you've got to uh, understand a whole lot of other stuff, but the only reason you exist as a newspaper photographer is to get a print which can go to the editorial uh, conference for that night, and that's it. You go out, you shoot, you make a print, you present it to the boss, move on. So did you get to New York? Finally, yes, I did. Um, I had a call from this friend of mine who was actually a sports journalist when I last saw him in Melbourne. And uh, a very, once again, another madman. You've got to be half mad to do all this stuff, really. You do. Um, and in the Australian vernacular, he said, G'day, it's Murph. I said, mate, what are you doing? Are you in town? Or Because in Hong Kong, you've got, you've got to sit there long enough and everybody comes to town, you know. There's an old story that if you sit in the arrivals hall at Hong Kong Airport, you will meet pretty much everybody on the earth. <laughs> and it's, it's, it, it, it might be a silly thing to say, but in reality, it's, it's not far off the mark, you know. So you'd quite often get a call. Oh, g'day, I'm in town. How are you? Let's go and have a drink, whatever. I said, Murph, you in town? No, 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 he said, I'm calling you from Canada. I said, what are you doing in Canada? What? what? He said, oh, I live in a place called Edmonton. I said, yeah. Nice call. And this was, <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, I found out later when I had a chance to, you know, after this phone call, sit and talk with him. He'd been working in the uh, on the oil rigs and stuff up north, just doing hard yards, you know, no journalism, no anything. And uh, there was an ad um, for people to help with the uh, promotion and uh, writing and all that sort of stuff for the Commonwealth Games coming up in Edmonton in 1978. Um, so he answered the ad and then he rang me and he said, uh, I want you to come to Canada. I said, oh, yeah. He said, I'm working on the Commonwealth Games, which, of which I was only vaguely aware. Um because you just, it's not a sport culture all that much in Hong Kong. Uh, and I was, I was in the fashion world and the tourism world and the sort of PR world. And uh, I had done quite a bit of sports photography and I had some skill in it. I won a couple of awards back in Melbourne for, for things. 
And uh, he said, I've, I've got the job of appointing and uh, recruiting the photographers for the official record book for the Commonwealth Games. And I want you to come over here. We're going to offer you three weeks' work. And he mentioned a day rate, which was quite attractive. I said, yep, no problem. When do you want me there? And that's what I did. Uh, in those days, we could do things less formally than we do now. Uh, in terms of uh, airlines these days are fairly uh, frugal with what they do. But uh, back then, uh, there were some people moving around the world who would go to a, uh, an airline and say, I'm off shooting. Um, if I do you a three-page you know, story with so many pictures and all that stuff, can I please have a ticket? And they'd say, yes, certainly. <laughs> So uh, I managed to... You were the early influencer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that word. That's a shocker, that word. Uh, do they actually? Absolutely. Maybe they do. Yeah, yeah I suppose they do. do. Yeah. So I managed to organise myself flights uh, around the world, with the exception of getting across the Atlantic. I hadn't solved that one, but I got from... Uh, from Hong Kong to uh, Vancouver uh, and then on to Edmonton. Uh, I did the job and then I took off myself at a bloke named Tony Fedder, who's a fine sports photographer uh, here in Australia, uh, still with us. I don't know that he's shooting, but his son, I think, works as a press photographer these days. Um, son or younger brother, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so I went to Canada and we did the gig. And there were some great photographers there, great photographers. Uh, there's one guy who I got on with quite well, uh, Mike, Mike. Forget his name. But he, uh, he was no, no. He was, he was actually English born, oh. and of relatively uh, noble's the wrong word, but but high status. His dad would have been, I think, a diplomat, so he travelled the world quite a lot. And uh, he was an urbane and very cool dude. And he said to me, as everybody did in those days, hey, when you're in my town, which was New York, look me up. So I ended up doing that. I went with Tony down to L.A. and spent a day in L.A. with another photographer, and that's another story. Um, and when I finally got to New York and Mike had sort of said, look, here's, you know, come and see me. You can, you can sort of... Uh, spend some time on the couch at my place to decide what you're going to do. Uh, I got there because the, the, we used to have to do things like this. You'd tell people maybe 10 days, two weeks prior, and you'd rock up on the day um, because that's the way it was done. You know, your ability to communicate was very, very patchy. Uh, so I rocked up on the appropriate day in New York and Mike said, oh, yeah, great. Let's go and have a drink. We'll, you know, find out what you want to do and all that stuff. He uh, he's proceeded to tell me that uh, here, here's the key to the flat. I'm going away for two weeks. Um, I've got a job down in, in uh, California and I've got this and I've got that. He had clients all over the US. Uh, and he actually, the client he went to, service on that trip was a client who led him 
to have the plum job in the US of White House press, White House official photographer, because the dude he was going to work for then in 1976, correction, 78, was Ronald Reagan, who then became some sometime later the president. And uh, he became the White House photographer. What was the last uh, name? Do you remember uh, the photographer's last name? It was a Mike. Jones, Mike. Mike Jones. No, I can't. I, I, can't I can look recall. it up. I, I can but if, up. You, if you uh, Google White House Prex photographers, you'll find it. But there are a lot of interesting dudes there. The guy who, for instance, came over from, uh, I think, Ottawa. Um, another madman. He and his brother ended up uh, inventing Trivial Pursuit, for goodness sake. And, uh, you know, there are all these people there uh, shooting uh, for the book, which we all worked together on. And it was terrific. Then I went to New York, met a few people, so on and so forth, showed them a folio, which you had to do. You know, we didn't have the ability to carry much those days. No PowerPoints, no nothing. You just carry a little book of pictures, uh, if you could. And uh, I met the people at Black Star. I went to the National Geographic. I did this, I did that. Went to see all these people. And they all said, oh, yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. You know, we, we can we can talk, you know, and uh, let us know what you want to do and how you want to do it. And uh, I went back to Hong Kong finally after a trip to the UK and here and there. And... Um, effectively had to decide then what I was going to do for the next little while. And, and effectively, I had a simple choice between living out of a suitcase for the next 30 years because I had, through Belsey Studio, met some of those guys who come through. Uh, and our, I think Vietnam was still bubbling at the time. There was a lot of work in Asia for, for, for American and uh, European photographers who worked for photo agencies, Black Star, Magnum, uh, you know, all these things. Um, and they all lived out of suitcases. And the pressure that they were under quite often was, was quite immense. You know, they've got to be here, shoot a board of directors. Uh, day after tomorrow, I've got to be in Singapore. I've got to do a factory, I've got to do the exterior of a building, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And it's all assuming, of course, that everything's going to fall into place. The director's going to be available, uh, the place they're going to shoot it is uh, presentable, um, the weather's not going to intervene if we have to photograph a building. And these guys were, you know, uh, I'm overstating it slightly, but they were in a constant state of flux trying to balance their their life, their itinerary, their uh, workflow, their clients. And I thought, no, I don't think I need to do that. I, I had no desire to do that. And uh, I returned to Australia. And sadly enough, I went back to Melbourne. <laughs> Bernie finds that a little offensive because he <laughs> thinks Melbourne is the greatest place in the world. No, I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he feels it at the core of his being. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like he's working for the tourism department at uh, Melbourne. So Yeah, well, it's my own tourism department. I own well, it. You're an influencer. <laughs> That's right. I'm influenced <laughs> myself and the three people that read what I, what I put in. Um, yeah, but you're an affluent influencer. <laughs> 
Yeah, right. <laughs> you told me a story about one of our uh, super successful photographers in Melbourne, and uh, just getting back to Melbourne, Brian Brandt. And oh, Brandt. His yeah. daughter and, and about photographing the wedding. Tell us that oh. story that, because I thought that was an interesting story. Well, Brian was, and I only had this story secondhand. Um, what was his daughter's name? I would have been trying to think, and I can't, but I will before we uh, we close the story down. I'll I'll be able to tell you. Yeah, um, it's on the tip of my tongue. He had a daughter and a son. Uh, Sean was his son's name, um, but Brian was a doyen photographer in uh, Melbourne, an advertising photographer with a capital A. He ran. In those days, studios used to work in such a manner, and I'd experienced it in Hong Kong with Belsey. You would work out of the studio and you would, they would look after you. They'd do your invoicing. You had somewhere to bring clients to do a meeting if necessary. Uh, you had, you know, all the, the studio lighting equipment if you wanted it, et cetera, et cetera. And for this, you paid a percentage of your... Uh, billings to the studio and that percentage and what you got was a movable sort of sliding scale depending on negotiation all that stuff and Brian ran a big advertising studio he had people there uh, I'm now talking the 80s I mean he had people there like George Apostolidis I think Rob Imhoff went through there at one stage Angie Heinel so many people started in Brandt's studio and Brandt was an extremely good businessman who made his money really out of real estate. He had bought buildings long before anyone else thought they were valuable. Uh, he, uh, I think he owned that church, the jam factory for a while. You know, that thing that's near the jam factory yeah. in Chapel Street. Um, Brian was, once again, crazy um, and delightfully so. He was a short person. Uh, he looked, he would not have looked out of place, um, I suspect, in one of Peter Jackson's films uh, shot in New Zealand. Uh, bushy eyebrows, uh, a sort of an avuncular manner, but a man with a a mind like a steel trap. He, he had this way of, uh, uh, and there's been a few of them that I've met over the years who have this wonderfully approachable, generous manner, but who are so bright and quick to grasp opportunities that it's amazing. And Brandt, because of all these characteristics, attracted to him a lot of people who were lovely. And uh, one... <laughs> I went to an awards night for the advertising industry one time and Brian turned up. He had bright orange hair. He had white hair normally, but he'd got back to the studio that day. There was no one there. The place was open. There was literally no one there. The joint was open, no receptionists, no nothing. Where were they? They were all the hairdressers for the awards night. So he said, right, lock the door. I'm going to the hairdressers. Got his hair, changed colour. That's the sort of mad things he used to do. <laughs> and, and as far as the wedding thing is concerned, I heard this story that Brandt was at a wedding 
family uh, wedding. Seely was his daughter. Seely, Seely, that's Seely. Right. Yep, Seely. Yep, yep. Um, and apparently, I'm told he was there, as always. You know, we've all got cameras in those days. God knows where all the pictures went because well, I don't think we've actually shot any. We drown in selfies these days, but we never used to take any, really. Um, <clears throat> so Brian's there. Everyone's having a good time. His daughter, Sealy, says, Dad, can I borrow your camera? Certainly. Hands over the camera. Sealy goes off, takes pictures. Lots of pictures. Even more pictures. And then she thinks, I'm taking a lot of pictures with this camera. I'll have a look. There's no film in it. So she goes back to her dad and says, Dad, what's going on here? You've, you've given me a camera without filming it. He said, well, yeah, yeah, so. She said, but, you know, what, what's that about? How dare you give me a camera without filming? And he said, well, did you take lots of pictures? Did you have a good time? Did you, you know, meet lots of good people? And yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, well. What's the big deal? You don't need film, you know. I mean, Brandt was like that. He had this brain that sort of would flip things in a very unconventional way, but in many ways he was not entirely inaccurate. You know, we sometimes use cameras to get ourselves into places and into environments that we would not otherwise find ourselves in. And this is correct too, and the, and uh, it's all about that. That, that. That's why we started this podcast. It's uh, uh, the life of a professional photographer can certainly get you into places, as you say, can give you great experiences. You get to oh. meet great people. You travel, yeah. and that's all part of it. Yeah, but sometimes it is good to have film in the camera. Well, yes, it is. But you know, Brian was a very unconventional <laughs> fellow. <laughs> I used to play golf. His, he and his brother, and boy, were they a double act. Uh, his brother was his brother was an interesting bloke too. He was a copywriter, uh, and I don't know if you know much about ad agencies, but copywriters, and we're talking about Mad Men times. We sure, you know, you know, and I think that's the best way to. And Brian's brother was a copywriter uh, in those days, and in those days. You got paid an absolute huge amount of money to effectively come up with ideas. Um, and his brother was an interesting fellow because uh, he, I spent a lot of time with him because he moved to Cairns after a while where I was. But Brian and he used to come and play golf. And Brian had the most expensive golf clubs you could possibly get. And he could hit the ball really well. He said, oh, no, I've got expensive golf clubs but i'm a snob <laughs> and in his own way he sort of was you know uh, his brother was interesting and i said how did you get into this advertising thing he said well when i was a kid for my 10th birthday or thereabouts my father and i would have liked to have met their father because he sounded like an interesting bloke my father we were living in melbourne my father bought me for my 10th birthday a year's subscription to New Yorker magazine. And it changed my life. He said, by the time I got to New York, because he kept up the subscriptions and he went moved into advertising, 
by the time he got to New York, he knew exactly where all the jazz bars were. He knew their background. He'd been reading New Yorker magazine for the better part of 10 years assiduously. And, uh, yeah, anyway, that's Brian's brother. Sorry to uh, divert. No, that's okay. Just tell us this, the other story uh, you, you were t- talked about, about David Bailey, and we... we oh, yeah, I'll let, the, Mr. F- I'll let Mr. Farron tell that story when you finally track him down. Um, <laughs> well, look, I phoned uh, or contacted uh, Mr. Farron, and uh, Mr. Farron... Neil was very busy um, photographing the Americas or what he called yeah. the Prada Americas Cup in New Zealand at present. Yeah, well, that's, that's the deep end of the money pool. That really <laughs> is that is. right? That's big oh, money? Mate. Oh, mate. <laughs> Not necessarily for Neil. And he will have found a client, you know, he'll, he'll look after and do a fine job for. But in terms of uh, a sporting event with uh, scads of money, involved scads it, i like that i wish it, i had scads well i don't think i've ever heard that word i don't even we should look it up it, it might even be jewish some people i don't know it might even be yiddish who knows sounds like a lot yeah yes. it does oceans of money is you know what you need to put a boat into the america's cup oh, correct and, and uh yeah we in australia of course have a have a tradition with the america's cup you know it uh I had a friend of mine from Hong Kong who was uh, English and he moved to Australia and his wife kept saying, oh, I want to go back to Hong Kong. I want to do this, whatever. And uh, Mike was with me in Melbourne. He was a copywriter at an ad agency and a fine one too. They used to get scads of dough also. Lovely man. And he happened to be with me in Australia in our lounge room when when Australia won the America's Cup. And it was a... It was a uh, quite a moment when our little country won the America's Cup for the first time, took it off the the Yacht Club of New York for uh, 140 years or something. No one had won the Blooming thing, you know. Uh, and Mike was gleefully jumping around the lounge room. We won, we won, we won. And I thought, that's it, mate. You're never going away. This is your place now. Because <laughs> he'd made, I thought, his wife's got no hope. Now, he uh, he he crossed over. <laughs> Did you ever get get an opportunity to shoot that America's Cup uh, in New Zealand? Or uh... no, no, no. I uh, I used to do a lot of sport when I was a press photographer because in in Australia we didn't have we didn't have specialised photographers. I was quite amazed when I got to Canada actually that that every uh, discipline, for want of a better word. They had people who were just photographers. They didn't edit their stuff. Quite often, they didn't process their stuff. Uh, and we used to do everything. Uh, we, When I first started, I was in a darkroom for almost two years without touching almost anything. I just had to watch and learn. And where I was working as a cadet on the age, there were upwards of 20 photographers and it was fantastic. Some of whom were odious individuals. You know, they'd been around far too long and uh, drank way too much, um, but were photographers and there was stuff to learn from them. And uh, 
we became trained, we photographers, press photographers in Australia at that time, in virtually everything. We could, uh, we could use what we would call a picturegram machine. We could send and receive pictures over the wire um, with a little portable machine if we got taken away somewhere on, a, uh, say, a plane crash or a, you know, up in the scrub somewhere where there was, you had to go to the telephone exchange plug the thing in directly to the physical exchange and establish a line back to the office and send pictures through. So we'd done all this training. And uh, I was amazed when I got to Canada that, uh, especially in Edmund, and at one stage, um, Kodak used to have a machine called a Versamat that uh, processed black and white film. It broke down. And... Uh, Everyone was, what are we going to do? No, technicians, you know, we're in Edmonton. Technicians in Montreal or God knows where. You know, it's going to be days before we fix this thing. And there was another photographer there I'd never met before. And a uh, little short bloke. I'm going to have to trawl up his name now because he was one of our great photographers. McFedron. Russell McFedron. And um, he was famous, like, you know. If you remember the uh, when the Israelis were raided in an Olympic Games and they took a picture, someone took a picture of the guy with a head. Yeah, that was McFedrin. That was oh. McFedrin. He shot that. It's quite the icon- uh, iconic image from those Olympics. Yeah. yeah, well, not those, but yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Um, and uh, so everyone's standing around looking at this versamat, saying, "Oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do?" And this bloke and I looked at each other and said, why doesn't someone fix it? Oh, no, we can't touch it. And we fixed the blooming things all the time. That was part of what we did. You know, if there's no film in it, you just took the lid off. You, It was full of rollers and chains and wheels and all that stuff, some of which, you know. So we just fixed the thing, much to everyone's surprise, because that's what we did. You know, our training was a lot different. Well, Robert, I'm just fascinated by that training. And as a press photographer, you're covering the Commonwealth Games. Is this a scenario you'd be at? Like you're at the finish line, uh, the 100 metres race, and you've got <laughs> your camera yep. and you have to, and it's it's film. Yep. And you can't look at the back. And oh, no. you take <laughs> a photograph. Yeah. That photograph has to be good, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, one hopes within a, it's... Within a fraction of a second, you have to capture this monumental yep. part of history for that you do. particular race. Uh, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but it's what we did. I mean, I think ambulance drivers and people get under pressure, but that's what they do every day. You know? <laughs> well, true. They do it with a, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, whatever, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and if you talk about if you talk about yeah. those games in particular, the '78 games, there were a number of people who were athletes at the time. Daly Thompson, the great yeah. uh, decathlon fellow, that was really the first games where he came to prominence. And there were a lot of really great athletes at those games. The hundred meters was always the the one everyone wanted their country to win, and there were. You know, the equivalent of what we have today. Two big, tall, strong guys from the Caribbean who talk the big talk and we're going to see each other off and, you know, the old trash talking went way back. 
So when that race was on, I wasn't there, thank goodness. I was somewhere else. I didn't have that bird. But everybody got on the finish line except McFedron. <laughs> well, where was he? He was a sneaky little shit. Um, <laughs> he was so good. He shot it from head on. Oh, right. Right? And as they went across the line, they pointed at each other. You know, arms extended. And McFedron scooped everybody. Scooped. He was right. a bloody fantastic photographer. I gotta look, um, look. I gotta look up that picture. I, I, I just pulled up the uh, the 1978 uh, uh, Commonwealth Sport uh, in Edmonton. Looks like yeah. uh, Canada won 109 medals, and Australia came with 84. That was number three. Yeah, yeah, and that'd be right. 87. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I mean, but by that time, of course, I was resident in Hong Kong. It had been for a number of years. I did not have the slightest clue what Australia was either doing or capable of, and. And I was quite happy to embrace, you know, all sorts of things I'd never seen before. Uh, but that was my point about training. I'll go back to that. Yeah. One of the things we did in our training, uh, oh, not only training, but in a working life, was shoot sport. Now, in a lot of parts of the world, you have specialist sports photographers. We didn't do that. We'd be doing sport one day, you know, a sort of a general news job another day, you know, a check signing or an opening of a blooming local park another day and it was a mix of stuff um and i had shown some ability in the sporting area and that's why i ended up in canada did you get a chance to explore uh, anything other than just edmonton no not much uh because i'd sort of given commitments to people that i was going to be in new york um and all that stuff. And as I said, it wasn't all that easy to, uh, to, to communicate with people. You know? um, I was in BC for a while, and I love that place. I mean, that's where you get back to Bernie. I mean, he's obviously never been to Edmonton. No. No. It, it all, I mean, I, I, in my previous work uh, life, I, I used to travel to Edmonton quite a bit. We had a couple yeah. of uh, mines. Uh, I meant Vancouver. In, 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 I do apologise, Bernie. In Alberta. So, yeah, I meant uh, Vancouver, mate, because that is the great city of the world. No, I have been there a couple of times. Yeah, well, it's not good, not nearly as good as Melbourne, is it? No, no, <laughs> the weather's, weather's much better in Melbourne. Let, let's, let's face it, you know. Well, in Vancouver, mate, you can water ski in the morning and snow ski in the afternoon, should you so desire. <laughs> yeah, similar to Melbourne. <laughs> um, so we're just uh, running out a bit of time. I just oh, I do apologize. No, that's all right. I just wanted to, um, when you started your photography career, like we were talking to a guest uh, the other week and uh, they were talking about, they started with 10 by eight film sheets and 10 by eight inch cameras. Where yes. did you start? What were the cameras when you started off? Well, um, primarily two and a quarter square. Okay. Uh, twin lens reflex, Mamiya flex. Um, with interchangeable lenses. I think yep. the 50 mil, I forget what the longer one was, but a standard lens quite often is all you got, mate, on those twin lens reflex cameras. Yep. Um, we had Nova Flex, I think Practica 6x6 cameras yep. for SLR work. Yep. 
And I was actually with the great photographer in Melbourne, John Lamb. Um, he's a man out of Melbourne who just had a fantastic stellar career at the age. Another madman. Um, I was with him the day he unboxed a Nikon. Um, and we're standing there unboxing this Nikon. Uh, and he said, oh, what do you reckon? You know, we sort of, it's very small, isn't it? You know, and that was when we changed the 35 mil. Um, but as far as gear was concerned, four by five was there. Um, they used to use it for the racing strips. You know, the little things that you have, the picture of all the, they did a 200 metre or 200 yards or how, to, how many furlongs it was in those days. They did the a strip, they did a strip there. Yeah, yeah. They had two photographers at the races all the time. Um, one to do the strips and one to do the other one at the five furlong mark or whatever. And uh, they were four by five. Speaking of and, gear, I, I'm just looking at your website, uh, Robert. You, you're, the image of you just leaning against the this massive uh, camera, a field camera. Oh, yes. What, yeah, that's a scene. What, what's, what's the story behind that? It's just massive. Well, uh, I was shooting a landscape picture. Right. How, um, how big is that? I mean, that uh, by looking at it, I mean, you, you're literally leaning on that camera yeah. and it's bigger than you. So, yeah. Well, it's a CNR 4x5 camera, but with a long lens. And uh, I was shooting a particular sort of view of a property for a client. And I needed to control the perspective. And I needed a long lens view. And it needed to be a sort of a sausage-shaped picture. So I had the 6x12 back on the CNR camera, which is a, a double square, for want of a better term. Uh, the long lens and the bellows on the front was just a, a lens shade, really. Uh, and if you put a three, I think it was a 300, it was a 360 mil lens or something, which on a four by five is not all that long. Right. But that's how far you rack the bellows out. You know, you, you're racking the bellows out quite a long way. Oh, that's um, amazing. So it's not, it's not anything... Uh, for four by five, it's not anything out of the ordinary. To me, it uh, just looks massive. I mean, it's not something that you're going to put in your pocket and uh, go, oh, to no, no. <laughs> go to a work site. It's like, no, no, no. Be... <laughs> not at all. When you shot four five and uh, you had to become conversant with it. You know, shooting four by five is like working in a dark room. You've got to do it at an extremely long time before you become competent. Um, and you can waste a lot of film doing it, which costs a lot of money. Uh, to even shoot a 4 by 5 picture, I'm sure these days would cost a fortune because they, you know, film is not available, the processing is not always available, yak, yak, yak. And it's a thing that's been lost now, the, the skill of using 4 5 cameras. And, Robert, of course, a 10-8. Yeah, go on. No, I, I was just going to say we, we are just towards uh, the end of our uh, podcast, but before we do that, we always have some questions for the guests. So this is a rapid fire question that are going to be thrown at you. We're just going to put you in a hot, uh, hot seat. So Bernie, I'm going to pass that uh, mic over to you and uh, fire away. And Thanks, uh, Robert, uh, uh, Hawk didn't mention that there's a big prize um, 
attached to this and uh, the prize jackpots every guest. So it's now uh, a trip to Texas at the end of the year. Um, <laughs> Which year? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know if he wants to go there right yeah. now. What's in our lifetime? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was that it's, catch. He has to like, go next week. <laughs> it's like New Hasselblad gear. They say it'll be out at Easter, but they don't tell you which goddamn Easter. <laughs> yeah. So, but these are, are one-word answers. If you can manage that, Robert, um, I shall try. You, 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 you're in with a chance to win the prize. So, uh, favorite alcoholic drink. Uh, favorite city in the world? It changes. What sport do you play? Swim. If you could have dinner one-on-one -on -one with any person in the world, living or dead, who would it be? <sighs> I know, but I forget his name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you forget his name. Okay. The man who wrote the Declaration of Independence. In the Abraham US. Lincoln? No, no, no. He, uh, that was to get his burger zest. No, what? not that no. either. The one whose uh, house is uh, <laughs> the one whose house is Monticello, uh, and who was an interesting and wonderful president, the third president of the US. Him. Okay, great. We'll look well, that up. None of us Americans. Look it up quick, Hark. Look it up now. We'll do it again. Look, look it up, Hark. We'll ask the question again. Third president of the United States. Favorite movie? Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. The great he, man. So I'd like to have uh, uh, dinner with Thomas Jefferson. Favorite movie? I don't have one. Favorite camera you've ever owned? Well, the best lens I've ever had is a Leica M1, uh, F, a Leica F1, Noctilux. You don't buy cameras, you buy lenses. Uh, would you like to relive your life? Yes or no? Not particularly. I mean, <laughs> I have no regrets if that's what the question is. But uh, we, we are here for a short time and we're gone. <laughs> Correct. Uh, what's your favourite food? Ah. German. Uh, who would you like to be if you weren't you? Don't say Bernie. Oh, most people say yeah, Bernie Griffith. Right. <clears throat> I don't. I don't. I don't think about these things. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> My Thomas Jefferson was uh, when. Uh, When Clinton was president, he had a dinner at the White House for all of the uh, Nobel laureates. And in his opening speech, he cracked a joke, which everyone got and laughed uproariously. And he's sort of something like he said, uh, it's, it's wonderful for you all to be here and to have such a great gathering of intelligence in the one room at the one time. He said, probably the last time this amount of intelligence was in this room was when Thomas Jefferson had dinner alone. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. he was he was like that. Very good. If if you if you hadn't have been a photographer, what would you like to have been? Probably a lawyer. 
And what is your motivation that gets you out of bed every morning? Oh, I take a piss, really. That's the first thing. That's a good, good, that's good motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate, yeah. All right. Well, we, uh, you, you didn't get the prize, Robert. Excellent. That's great. I have no, well, I do have a lovely friend in Texas. She is uh, a newly minted grandmother and uh, is an old mate of mine from Cairns from 30 years ago. She married the captain of the love boat. And, oh, that was another story. This is the real love boat, not the. Yeah, the, oh, the real love boat. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, uh, she's now a grandmother and lives in Texas. And I worry for her at the moment. Yeah. It's a shocking place at present. But, um, but I'll, get, uh, I'll get Hawk to just uh, round everything up, uh, Robert. So if well, I just say Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. You can drop it in. Yeah, you but you still don't. But you still don't get the prize. Oh, I don't want the bloody prize. (laughs) (laughs) I have had the privilege recently of travelling quite a bit because I live with a travel agent. That's handy. uh, Yeah. Uh, We were actually in uh, Hawaii when uh, we got back two weeks before they closed the borders here in Australia last year. Yeah, we were there in Australia the 26th of uh, January last year. And... uh, I have, you know, we're, we're going to start travelling again when we can. When but, we can. You know, who knows, mate? And, and probably Europe and yeah. is the place to go, in my view. As well, I, I would love to come and see you guys in Australia because it's been uh, on my places to go to. So uh, hopefully uh, we can travel again. And uh, well, when that is, uh, currently we're still under a lockdown. So um, we'll, we'll keep going and we'll see. Yeah, you only need to come to Melbourne. There's nothing else. Yeah, well, there's everything else is shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. It's, it's, we, it seems like you still have a lot of stories. So we may have uh, to get you back here. And uh, we, we didn't even, I mean, I want to talk to you a lot on your commercial side. Uh, so we may end up uh, setting up a conversation one-on-one and we'll just leave Bernie out and we'll talk about uh, a little bit about uh, your commercial uh, business. Uh, yeah, sure, mate. No problem. I mean, it's, it's uh, the real problem a lot of people have got these days is that uh, they have an attitude towards competition, which is, in my view, uh, wrong totally wrong and it's always been wrong you know this whole idea of competition and pricing and all that sort of stuff and dealing with clients and right in my view most people get it wrong well we'll we'll leave it at that and we're going to talk about it next time bernie thank you very much and uh, thanks uh, very much for uh, joining us today robert um let, i'm going to let you close it out yep uh thank you very much for having me and I hope you can salvage something out of this mess. Thanks, Robert. We'll do a lot of, we'll do a lot of editing. It'll only take yeah. about five or six hours. And, yeah, you're uh, going to need help there. Just into uh, some form of being interesting. All right. Thank you. Catch up with your heart too. See you in the thank next you. episode. All right. Bye for now.